Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello everyone, thank you so much for deciding to spend a little time with me today. It is Monday the 10th and this episode comes out and I'm recording this intro on the 8th, the day before Mother's Day. So if you are a mother, a maternal figure, have a mother that you are going to celebrate, I hope you have a wonderful day. And if you are someone who is missing their mum or maternal figure, my thoughts are with you and I'm sending you my love. I've had a really (laughs) interesting fortnight in that the last week I've had to take the entire week off, which is something that I never do. And it was all because I ignored signs that things were harder than I wanted to acknowledge for myself. Both mentally and physically, I have become exhausted and I ended up in quite a serious health situation of which there had been symptoms that it was coming and rather than acknowledging my own health and putting myself first like most teachers I kind of just plowed on and thought you know it'll be better when or I'll be able to relax when and the inclusion of little children and going back to teaching has meant that there has been very little relaxing and downtime because obviously I work I then have the kids until bedtime they go to bed about 7 8 o'clock and then it's work time for me and so the way that I would get downtime would be after getting all of that work done watching tv or doing mindless things on my phone or doing chores around the house and none of that stuff was really allowing me to get any kind of rest or recuperation or regeneration and You know, the conversation that I have with Aaron, Nathan and Serena, where Aaron says you need to fill up your cup the way you need to, because if you do it the way you think you should be doing it or the way that other people seem to be doing it, it just becomes more work. And I think I'm in that real transition at the moment of working out exactly how to do this, because it's that added element of children that means that there is that time that I would have relaxed, gone for a walk, gone to the gym, decompressed that I now don't have because I have to do work or have to get things done. And again, I'm going to quote Gabby Stroud when I say something completely constructed. And if you haven't listened to the Why We Teacher podcast, you need to because it's incredible. I'll put it in the show notes. It's all a construction in my head of how I believe my life should be. And it's something that I desperately have to reimagine for myself in order to ensure that I am healthy and happy and not exhausted and not putting myself last like many teachers tend to do. And for that reason, my conversation with Karen Caswell today, her biggest lessons really hit home for me and I'm sure it will with lots of you. And she blogs about it, writes about it. Her Instagram handle is authenticity in edu, which I'll put in the show notes and her vulnerability and ability to be open and honest about the things that many teachers tend to be some part perfectionist, some part control freak. I think it's why we get into 
the profession in some way or it's something that is appealing to many of us. Letting go of control and also putting yourself first can be very challenging for many of us. And so that's something I've had to do. And funny, because I feel I've learned this lesson before and yet I haven't made the choices I need to make. It's funny how the universe does that, puts things in your path to ensure that you are learning that lesson again if you have forgotten it. So that's where I've been this week. My conversation, as I said, with Karen Caswell is a really important one. She has been in the profession for a long time. She's all over Twitter and has a conversation that she hosts on Twitter every week. She has been an early childhood and primary school educator. She's a parent and I've just really enjoyed connecting with her and I know that you'll enjoy this conversation. If you are enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media. Tag myself at Educating Laura and Karen at Authenticity in EDU. If you want to give back to the podcast, there is a link in the show notes to buy me a virtual coffee, which I would deeply appreciate because, you know, this is my passion and it is a way to bring out the voice of other educators. And I'm, I'm really excited to be able to do that. It's such a privilege. And here is my chat with Karen. Hi, Karen. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really good. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you on. I'm really excited to get to know you. First question I'd like to ask is the role education has played for you in your life. Well, big role. (laughs) I've been Mm -hmm. an educator for nearly 25 years. So obviously I've been a student, then at uni, and then back to school as a teacher. So Yeah, it's been a huge part of my life. Would you say that your experience as a student is the kind of experience you want your students to have or do you want your students to have a different experience than what you had? Um, No, it needs to be different because obviously, you know, a long time ago when I was um, back at school, just different, you know, society was different, different context, different values even, I guess you could say. Yeah, so I think that it needs to be different. Education has evolved since then and as teachers or as educators we need to evolve as well yeah so what was the decision to become a teacher like for you I don't know there wasn't really any one decision that was just something I always knew I wanted to do Uh, there was really never anything else that I'd considered even I think as far back as primary school I knew that I wanted to be a teacher I don't ever remember coming to that decision or realization a conscious thing it's just always something I wanted to do I don't know if my sisters are a bit younger than I am so they were born when I was 10 and 12 so possibly you know having younger like quite younger siblings whether that played a part I guess always had a connection with little kids and it just went from there and it was always primary for you I'm actually early childhood trained so it was the birth to eight years I worked in as a director of a childcare centre for a few years straight out of uni. And then when I decided to leave that industry and go and work for the department, I got put on a multi-age five, six, seven class, which was a bit scary. (laughs) And then I transferred so I could get to preschool. So I've taught preschool prep year one probably for quite a while. But then gradually I've just been moved up I guess, as part of the way schools work. And now I'm currently on year four. (laughs) Was there any difference or or additional training that you had to do from 
the early childhood to becoming into like getting into the primary setting or was it just kind of the same qualification? Well, it's a Bachelor of Education, early childhood. Yeah. I think once you're working for the department in Queensland, I don't know what it's like in other states, for you to work on other year levels above grade three, it's principal's discretion. So Okay. Yeah. Did you feel prepared considering you had, yeah, mainly training with the you said like newborns to eight-year-olds. What yeah. was that like for you? Um, when I got put on the multi-age five, six, seven, that was, yeah, that was pretty scary. I didn't feel yeah. prepared for that at all. And when I discussed it with the principal at the time, he said that early childhood philosophy, you know, if I stuck to the philosophy, it would apply to the older students. The content was a bit tricky. <laughs> yes. So I did have to spend a bit of time preparing lessons to teach some of the content, which I hadn't actually used since I was at school, especially maths, like some of yes. the maths that you learn. It's not, you know, depending on your job that you would use every day. Okay. Yeah. Mm. I've had a pre-service teacher who was early childhood trained, but not anybody who's actually worked in early childhood. So I'd love to know what the kind of day-to-day of that is because I think the perception often is that you just, kids just play and you are there to facilitate play. And then I've got two kids currently, one's at kinder and one's in the two-year-old toddler room. And the amount of documentation and the curriculum Hmm. that's built in their days just blows my mind. So I'd love to know what kinds of things you were doing in early childhood. Well, it's been over 20 years since I've worked okay. in, in childcare. But, yeah, there, there is the curriculum and I know now that they have the accreditation process for childcare centres is very in-depth, so there's yeah. a lot of evidence gathering around that. I think, yes, they do play, but they learn through play. And as you say, it's facilitated play. It's not free play. Teachers plan the play, the learning through play experiences mm. that the children will be doing. There's a lot of nurturing, obviously, involved mm. in early childhood or in childcare, like before school settings. Long days for staff and even longer days for some of the kids. Yes. And you really do become, I guess, that parental figure for some of them, depending on their age and how long they're there for. Yeah. And it's not just education in the sense that we think of a curriculum. It's, you know, toilet training, it's teaching them to feed themselves, all of those things that are additional to the other expectations. And what was the most rewarding thing for you working with those sort of really early years? I think just the the connection, I suppose, with with them. You know, they're just the way that they express their emotions and there's no judgment, there's no trying to look cool there's no you know there's none of that it's yeah and they're really their curiosity at that age they still haven't been mm, I don't know how to put it but they haven't been systemized I suppose in terms of education so everything to them is learning and they're keen and eager Mm. And, I mean, we've all been through the stage of the questions and sometimes you wish they'd stop asking those yeah. questions. But, you know, when they do actually stop asking yeah. questions, that's that's a worry. Um, we don't really want them to stop answering those questions. So I think just that joy in learning was probably one of the most rewarding things. I've mentioned on the podcast before, like my daughter is just such a free spirit, really creative. My son's very process-driven, so very, very different learners to watch And there's a part of me that's a little nervous about her going into the system 
because I worry that the creativity won't be as fostered and because I can see in early childhood, she's just thriving in kinder and early childhood in the play-based curriculum. And I, yeah, I do worry sometimes. I mean, I'm even further down the system in high school. So I know what happens by the time they get to seven and eight. What kinds of things are you doing in primary to ensure that individuality is fostered in, in the learning? Um, I think we've come a bit of a circle. So when I first started teaching, especially when I was teaching preschool, it was still very much that play-based learning. And then for whatever reason, the powers that be decided that it was about outcomes Mm. in terms of academic outcomes, not in terms of developmental outcomes. Mm. They set targets, you know, that the kids had to be doing this by this age and that by that age. When do you think that was? in your career when do you think that sort of came in probably about 10 years ago I think it was probably at its peak I do think that well teachers have always known but I think that other people who make those decisions are also starting to realize because teachers you know very passionate about their beliefs about how students how children learn you know and we're very vocal and pushing back against the curriculum is just being pushed down younger and younger and they're just not ready for it. Yes. So I think there is hope. <laughs> um, you know, I do think, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I do think that, you know, yeah. there is that realisation that things do need, have, did need to change from where they thought. Because just setting a target doesn't mean that everyone's going to achieve it. It's just arbitrary. Like That's It's right. just like pulling a magic number out of the air and saying, oh, children will be doing this at this age. Yeah. Well, not unless it's backed up by development research yes. about how, how they develop and how they learn. So I do think that I know that yeah. age-appropriate pedagogies in Queensland is a very big thing in the early years, in prep in particular. And then throughout primary school, lots of inquiry-based learning, project-based learning, uh, student-centred learning. We do, we're a deep learning school. So I do think that there is now this realisation about that students need to be engaged. It needs to be relevant for them to succeed. What are some of the project-based learning tasks that you are really proud of doing? We don't do project-based learning as such. We do deep learning, which is looking at the mm-hmm. six Cs. So the traditional four Cs that most people would be aware of, which is your creativity, communication, collaboration, critical thinking, and then the six C's, the six Mm. to the next two is character and citizenship. And then our Mm -hmm. learning framework is like our pedagogical practices, learning partnerships, leveraging digital and the learning environment because that's obviously, you know, an important part of school. So I think the big thing for Mm. us is making it relevant to students so getting their getting an idea of what they're interested in and then using that to leverage the learning and how we present the curriculum I think a lot of our students have really come a long way it's the, the character we focused a lot on character so the the type of person that they are the type mm-hmm. of person they want to be when they grow up and how you can I guess be that contributing member of society I suppose so I think this term we do a unit of people on character and so we're looking at what yep. makes someone you know worth admiring or worth being a role model and so I really think mm. that character education for our kids that's something that I'm really proud of that we've 
done well at our school. And the data in terms of attendance, behaviour data, all of those things are showing that it is making a difference. What are the things that they identify as being worth admiring and also what are the characters that they see as important about themselves? I'd be really interested to see what kind of language they're using around those concepts. So when we asked them, we did it last year. We obviously, I will start this unit when we come mm-hmm. back after the holidays, but the students that we mm-hmm. taught last year, we do a lot of learning each week about different character traits, so resilience, persistence, empathy, all of those things. So they are getting yeah. that understanding because a lot of them don't know what those things mean. And when you say yeah, that someone's yeah. persistent, they don't know what it means or that someone's empathetic, they don't really know what that means. So we do do a lot of that background learning around those. But I think they see bravery, friendly, reliable, someone who can work as a team, supportive, creative. Like They come up with a really huge range of lists of character traits, surprisingly. And then we look into, well, who are some people that are admired? Mm. Why are they admired? What character traits do they demonstrate? What difference have they made? How have they helped others? Because a lot of our, I guess, focus as then being a person of good character is then the citizenship. Well, how do we then contribute? How do we help others? Yeah, it's really interesting to me as a high school teacher because I think that naturally as well, teenagers become quite self-involved. It all becomes very much about them as an individual and where they fit in a community alone. Like there's, there's this real break between family and the teenager and then working at how they fit within the world. And so it's I always wonder what we can be doing to support that transition better because it seems as though at primary school there's so much supporting the individual and making sure that the learning goals are being met and there's a lot of community-based elements and they get to high school and it seems very, very separated. Mm. Have you guys thought at school how we can do some of that, those transitions better or what you think you're doing that you'd like to see more in high school? Sorry, it's a big question. I'm just throwing that at you. Yeah, um, I don't like. I've never taught in a high school. I don't have any yeah, desire yeah. to teach in a high school. Um, <laughs> but you're one or the other, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some yeah. people are scared of little kids, and some people are scared of high school kids. <laughs> um, I do recognize the challenges. You know, we've got separate subjects. You might see however many classes a day. You know, so that equates to however many students across the week. Our feeder high school. They are also a deep learning high school. They have only opened last year, so they haven't had to make any changes. It's just the way that it is at their school. But they're doing a lot of the similar type of things. I don't know how they're handling subjects in terms of, you know, what's happening within subjects. But because the culture of the school is all around those values, everyone's on board. So I think that they do a lot of collaboration amongst the teachers, you know, what it can look like within that environment within that context and I think that's probably the biggest thing is I know there's a lot of disconnect because kids see different teachers throughout the day but if the teachers can I guess get together and and collaborate and have that shared vision then it would be a lot easier for it to be seen across the school not just happening in one class for example yeah yeah having those common threads throughout all of the Mm. curriculum potentially yeah what is your opinion on the way that teachers are trained? Have you done any sort of mentoring with pre-service teachers or things like that? Do you have any thoughts on the way we could improve teacher training? Yeah, so I take 
pre-service teachers every year uh, into my mm. classroom as part of their PRAC requirements. And I'm a beginning teacher mentor as well. Mm. I think it's the hands-on. Like, honestly, yes. you can yes. learn as much theory. You can learn all the theory about everything. But mm. until you have to put it into practice, you really don't have any idea what it all means. Um, yes. I think the behaviour, like behaviour management, more time in classrooms because, yeah, how to manage the variety and complexities of student behaviour, which is just increasing. Mm. Teaching of reading as well, in especially, I find that they really don't have any practical understanding or idea that, about how to go about teaching reading. Yeah. You know, and that's probably one of the things they, they struggle the most with. Maths is not so bad because maths is a bit more well, here's the concept, teach it. Yes. But it's the the reading. So how do you do shared reading, modelled reading, guided reading groups, you know, all of those practicalities and it's managing the class. So I really do think they just need more time in classrooms, to be honest. Yes. And so you're finding that there are pre-service teachers or, or new teachers coming into the profession that haven't done quite important aspects of the role like how to teach reading I mean I, I would think that that's a pretty integral part of primary school they do theory I'm sure they do subjects okay. on how to do how to teach reading but again it's very different when you get into and a classroom and you're working with one guided reading group what are the other 22 students doing yeah you know while you're working yes. with six you know there is a lot of theory out there that's I'm not going to go into it either about the different beliefs about the best way to teach reading. So I'm sure that that's very confusing for them as well. Mm. But it's just the, yeah. like, I'm sure they have that understanding or that theoretical knowledge about how to teach reading, but what does that look like in the classroom? What does it look yes. like when you've so actually got, yeah, when you've yeah. actually got, well, depending on the age, when you've got prep students, five and six-year-olds in front of you who've come from very different pre-formal school experiences, you know, and, and you can imagine what some of those kids come yes. to school like. You know, how, yeah. do, how do you, yeah, how do you just, how do you manage that? And then when they are able to read as such, well, how do you extend that? What What's the next step? Yes. How do you make them a better reader? Yeah, I don't think there's enough around extension for genuine growth. It's just busy work. Mm. There's always been so much around that, like just give them this and they'll be busy and they'll be out of your hair for a minute. Yeah. But all you get is these bored kids that don't want to finish their work early because they're getting they just get work extra work. And that's the thing. You can't yeah. punish students who can do the work by giving them yeah. more work. <laughs> I see it as yeah. a punishment. Like why yeah. why would you want to finish early when or yeah, when yes. your reward is to do more work? <laughs> Correct, and usually the same work, just mm. a different work. Mm. Or yeah, so I don't think I don't think that's done particularly well mm. at university in terms of enrichment. I see. I'm seeing a lot of people out there talking about that now. Do you think that that's where inquiry really helps to give them something to inquire that potentially is you know something that they decide? Yeah, I think. Them? Well, whether they decide it as such, or whether it's like a they sort of decide where to go with the big question, mm. then, yeah, they can go as far with that as they want. They can go as deep into the rabbit hole <laughs> as they desire. Yeah, and so it really does give them that 
that opportunity then to, I guess, extend their own learning, especially if they're really interested in it, and then to share that with others. That's really important as well. This is a really selfish question. Spelling. What is your favourite way or what of your go-to methods for teaching spelling to support kids that can't spell or find spelling challenging? Spelling is very difficult to learn mm. because the and English it's a selfish question. I'm like, can everyone give me the answer? Yeah. The yeah. is ridiculous mm-hmm. and it's hard. So I believe children become better spellers when they read more because you yeah. see words so much of the spelling. You can only retain a certain number of words. Like it's, you can't memorize every word there is. So it's, I think it's seeing the words because then you'll know when you go to write it, whether it looks right or not. Yeah. But it's also you have to, obviously, they need to know all the different letter-sound combinations and, you know, the different ways that words are put together, the meaning of words. So, I mean, there are the four spelling knowledges that I focus a Mm. lot of the learning on. And then it's really just that exposure. It's getting them, Mm. I guess, into when they come across a word that they don't know, teaching them strategies you know, well, how can you work mm. out what that word is? You can do this with it. You can do that with it. You can have a look to yourself. Does it look right? What else could it be? Yeah. I used to find, because I was a, I read a lot at primary school and I used to write a lot. And obviously we were not, I'm a product of the 90s. So there wasn't a lot of devices. I think we all had one Apple Mac computer in a classroom and it was that really big box <laughs> with the big Apple on the front of it. It might have even been a Macintosh. It might have actually said Macintosh on it. So not a lot of devices going on when I was at school. So, so much handwriting. So, for me, it was all about seeing it because I'd read mm. and also feeling yeah, the muscle, the muscle memory. memory. Yeah. And that's what yeah. I like. So, I'm not sure if that's happening, yeah. yeah um, I do think that they need to write more. We're a one-to-one iPad school. So, we do our writing in a book unless mm. there's a reason, you know, that they need it for differentiation or things like that. Um, most of our writing we do in a book because, yeah, the same thing, I think. And I know even now at my age I will write it. I don't actually quite, I don't feel like I'm consciously thinking about it when I write it. My hand just writes it for me. Um, whereas when I try, exactly to, when I try to think about it, I actually spell it wrong because <laughs> I overthink it. So, yeah, yeah and I think the issues, one big issue that I have with the devices is the predictive <laughs> text or the autocorrect. Oh, 100%. And you yeah. end up with just a line of gobbledygook because they don't realise that the word they're wanting to spell is not the word that's actually appeared on the screen. <laughs> I'm finding things like capitalization mm. to be a big issue. Mm. Capitalising eyes, they don't do that. Um, even in their handwriting, capitalising proper nouns. Mm. I'm finding you seven and eight that that is not something that's natural to them anymore because they're so used to pressing space mm. and the I is capitalising for them. Mm. So I'm seeing a lot of grammatical and punctuation issues because they just go, yeah, the gra- grammar, okay, 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 and yeah. it fixes it. Whether that's correct or not is another issue. Mm. And there's very little critical thought in terms of making a decision about, yes, that is the correct thing or, no, it's not, it's just sure, the computer must know. Yeah. And I find even capital letters at the start of a sentence. Yeah. Like, that's not automatic either anymore. Like that when you put a full stop, you just automatically put a capital letter. But I don't know. Like yeah. you, the, the same issues that you're seeing in high school, we're seeing in primary school and, and we're, you know, we're trying everything we can 
Um, We have a big focus on editing because we want them to learn how to spot those errors. But Mm. it's it's a long process, I think. Just their exposure to the devices and the lack of exposure, I suppose, to to writing and to more of those more traditional methods that we would have learnt or used when we were at school. Yeah. I do think it's having an impact, but it's they're not going away. So, you no. know, what can we do, you know, to... Um, and I think that there's... Well, there's there's educating them for the digital world that they're going to be a part of and that they are a part of because that is, as you say, is a complete reality. But then also losing those skills, the bare basics, because, you know, you could do something better with the device. Mm. And so it's it's such a catch-22, isn't it? Because you have to use the devices because otherwise you're doing a, them a disservice because they will have to use mm. them. So what was the decision for your school to go one-to-one? It could be seven or eight years ago that we went yep. one-to-one. Back then it was probably pretty innovative mm. to do that. We're at Apple Distinguished School, so we have developed how we use the devices. Did you feel like the device came before the curriculum or the curriculum came first? Probably initially, I guess, when the devices were sort of brand new. Mm. Maybe it was a, the focus was on the device. I don't know. It's hard okay. to say because... You know, like in any school, there's teachers that use the devices really well and there's other teachers yep. that maybe don't use them as much as they could be used, you know, sort of don't really get the full benefits out of them that can be done. So it's like it's a learning curve for everyone, I think. Mm. Very much now, though, it's the device is a tool. It's not the curriculum. It's not what we learn it's a tool to support student learning and for them, you know, a way for them to show what they know. So we have quite open-ended apps on our devices at school. There's not a lot of like game type, you know, apps that have a very one okay. sort of one fixed purpose. We use a lot of the the Apple creative apps that can be used in lots of different ways. So what are your sort of top five apps that you would use regularly keynote (laughs) oh we use seesaw that's not an app it's a learning platform but yeah we use seesaw a lot for students Mm -hmm. to show their learning and to connect with parents it's a really good tool to connect Mm -hmm. with parents so yeah seesaw keynote we used to have a lot more sort of apps but then they got quite expensive so because the parents provide the device yeah okay then we have a budget as to how much how the cost of the apps that you know they're they're asked to download onto them so we used to have a lot more than what we have or ones like explain everything they're really good it's a really great app but it got really expensive so explain everything is that what it was called and why was that good well it does a lot of the things that keynote does now anyway but you know it has this the tools, the drawing tool, the recording tool, the insert images, screencasting, like you can record yeah. a video as they're drawing and explaining their thinking. So we like a lot of the tools that can do that, where it provides students yeah. different ways to demonstrate their understanding. I use Flipgrid a fair bit. The younger grades probably use Book Creator more than Keynote. It's just a little bit simpler. Mm-hmm. And then ones that the Apple apps, so iMovie and Clips, those types of apps we use a fair bit of. We have things on here as well, like Mathletics, Kids A to Z, you know, so they do have subscriptions to those. A lot of the 
online quizzes are good, like Kahoot. Yeah. They're, they're pretty fun. And I think seeing it as a tool rather than having to use it, I felt like when I first started teaching, there was this big push to use the technology. And sometimes I got swept up in particular programs that at the end of the day, I actually would have done a better job just having a discussion. And I was pushing myself to use these particular programs because I felt like that was innovative. And at the end of the day, it was actually not beneficial. It just made my life a lot harder and it didn't get to the outcome I wanted. So you do have to be critical with what you use. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You have to think about it and think about the purpose. What is it that you're wanting to use it for? Um, What's the outcome that you're hoping to achieve by using it? And will it do that or is there a better way do you find that the kids are more interested if it's something that's technology based or it's that doesn't really matter to them I think initially yes they were but the iPads or tablets are just such a part of their yeah everyday life now that it's not really that novelty Mm. anymore Mm. so yeah initially that they were really engaged I think the creativity that it provides them makes it a lot more engaging yes the opportunities that they can have to share their work is really engaging and really valuable that, you know, you may not have without without the tool, mm. without the device. Obviously technology is one thing, but how have you seen teaching and your priorities within teaching evolve over the time you've been in the classroom? <sighs> well, <laughs> take your time. I didn't like the big, fa- the big, I don't, I understand the importance of data Mm. and why data is necessary if it's meaningful data. Mm -hmm. So probably what are we looking at, maybe five years ago now, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd been teaching for nearly 20 years, just the pressure that was being put on teachers, which then obviously was being put on students in terms Mm. of standardised testing results and data collection got too much. Um, yeah. It was really, really hard. I would hate to, and even now, like it's eased up a little, but I would find it, I can't imagine how difficult it is to be a beginning teacher now Yeah, compared to when, like, you know, stressful enough when I did it, but there was none of these expectations that there are now. So I think mm. that was very hard Mm. Uh, like I said earlier, I think that shift or that realisation that what we were doing wasn't working, yeah. putting, you know, the pressure on the standardised testing and on the data and this, that and the other, it wasn't working. And I know in Queensland mm. we got the scripted curriculum. It wasn't working. It didn't mm. get the results yep. that people thought it would. I yeah. guess it's it's going back to what we know works Um, and that you can't do any of that without building relationships with your students and connecting with your students. So you need the time at the start of the year especially to be able to do that. You can't just walk in and start collecting data on day one, which had had happened because there was that much Mm. pressure for data and then you had to sit down and analyse it and then this and that and the other, but it wasn't useful. Yeah. And it was just too much. Like you were just trying to collect too much. And teachers know their students without needing a, a data set. I've heard a few times from people too in different states that some of the data actually sort of informed how much funding was coming as well. Mm. And I think that's a huge issue. You'd like to say that it's all going to be done perfectly, but if, if it means that a school's going to get less funding because 
of some particular data, which means that they can't do what they want for their children. I mean, they're going to try and do what they can for their students and get the best opportunity they can for their students. And so putting pressure on data like that is not going to give you authentic information as far as I'm concerned. No, and it's, on it. and it's some of it, it's not used by some people in the way that data is intended to be used either. It's used to judge teachers, to judge schools. In Queensland, the NAPLAN data is published, league tables are published in the newspapers, mm-hmm. which rank the schools from one to whatever, mm. you know, and all it does is create divide. It doesn't help yeah. kids at all. It doesn't benefit students and their learning in any way, shape or form. Well, look, as a teacher who has two children that will be going to school, I would not look at the NAPLAN data mm. to make my decision on a school. So that's my, if anyone else is listening to this, <laughs> it would not be something I would be looking at. What about you? Is that something that would be important to you when sending a no, well, child to school? My boys came to school with me. but Because of the NAPLAN data? <laughs> no, it was where I was teaching. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah. It was just that's convenience. Yeah, but no, I would never. And I guess when we went, okay, when they had to go to high school, no, I didn't look at the NAPLAN yeah. data when, when they left primary school and had to go to high school. <laughs> Can I ask what kinds of things, as a teacher sending your child to a high school, what kinds of things were important to you to look at? Like any school, you need to visit. And it was the same with childcare centres. Like when I went back to work yes. and I had to put my kids into childcare and, you know, you do the rounds of all the the childcare centres and you just get that feel when you walk in. Yeah. I don't put a lot of value on their reputation, I guess, in social media because we all know that it's usually only the bad stuff that gets posted. Mm -hmm. Up here they have to go to the school in catchment so you don't have a lot of choice unless you're sending them to an independent school and that's a whole different kettle of fish, Um, you know. Yeah, that would be a bit overwhelming. And then all the costs associated with that. The school that my two, one's still there but and the other one's finished. But, you know, I see posts about that school all the time, you know, fights and things that have been recorded. Not all the time, but, you know, it makes big, you know, when it does, it's a big thing. And I say to them, oh, this happened at your school today. And they're like, oh, did it? I don't know. Because they're just not part of any of that yeah and you could have friends go to a school that was the bad school or the good school or the this school or the that school and it changes all the time like one minute you know mm-hmm. one school's oh you'll never send your kids to that school and then five years later oh it's the bee's knees like it's the best school everyone should send their kids to that school you're like oh, yeah it's just very subjective yeah, I think you're right. But it's it's a funny one. I don't think any teacher that I know has said, look at that NAPLAN data. I think most teachers say things like that, you know. Are they going to support your, your mm. child socially and emotionally? Are they going to have different curricula, co-curricular things available if they have different interests? I don't see anybody that's like, what's their NAPLAN data mm. like? Who's in the education system? Because you know how flawed it can be to make a judgment. Yeah. And it's a point in time yeah. test. It's like it's not yeah. it's not how they're doing day in, day out. Where do you find the most joy in your job? I think, well, the students. <laughs> it would be bad yeah. if it wasn't. It wasn't yeah. uh, so I just think connecting 
connecting with them and um, really developing that relationship with them. Being early childhood teacher, I loved the joy that the kids had in learning and I loved that, Mm. you know, they just, you know, they're so happy to see you and they really do show Mm. you a lot of love and they're they're really happy just to get a sticker. (laughs) Oh, you did such a good job sitting on the carpet. Here's a sticker and they're like, oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, so there's that real, that's, wonderful about the younger students but then the age that I've got now is they have developed more of that personality they are a little bit more of that their own person they're developing you know different traits and interests and you can have a bit more of a joke with them yeah you know so there's a different type of connection with the older ones I guess than the the younger ones you still have to repeat yourself probably more than you would like to (laughs) (laughs) So you probably find that in high school as well. Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah, Yeah. I think it's just really getting, I guess, getting to know them, seeing them engaged in learning and enjoying what they're doing, that they find value in what they're doing. Mm. When you hear them talking and talking about things that they really liked or they're saying about the – you know, you hear them talking about strategies that you've taught them and stuff. <laughs> That's really exciting. Uh, but yeah, when you yeah. when you see that, well, yeah, yeah you're, you're making a difference in their lives. Do you think it keeps me young? I think that all the time that it keeps my finger on the pulse sometimes because I've kind of aged out, obviously, of that. For me, it's teenagers. For you, it's obviously the younger children. But to see what they're interested in, it makes me look at the world through their lens a little bit more and and just. That perspective mm. is a nice one to have, I find, yeah. having that younger um, perspective. I still know nothing about Minecraft, but I get them to teach me. <laughs> I refuse. Yeah. Um, I refuse. It's not oh, something that I Minecraft that am in. interested in spending my time doing, but the kids are, so, like, we, we incorporate it <laughs> yeah. in that way. But, yeah, I guess it's yeah. – and yeah. having those conversations with them and then, yeah, they can share their interests with you or things they really like doing and – what have some of the really great online connections been for you? Because we've obviously connected through Instagram. We had, I know you were hosting Trevor McKenzie, who's really big on, you know, big provocations and inquiry-based learning and things like that. And so we've sort of got some mutual connections online. What are some of the big or some of the great things that you've been able to gain from an online presence as a teacher opportunities I'm able to offer my students so I'm probably a lot more active on Twitter than I am on Instagram and I host a Twitter chat every Sunday night so I've connected with a lot of people that way and connected with a lot of overseas educators as well so I've been really lucky to have some authors from overseas do read alouds with my class at the start of each year we do a get to know our crew day for the cohort and for the last three years we've had two years we had Tara Martin and the first year we had Dave Burgess do read alouds with the kids so I think a lot of that is really good and making those real world connections for the students so another educator in Virginia that I connect with is Tamara Letter she runs like a Mm -hmm. kindness project at her school and then one mm-hmm. of her classes connects with my class and so that just the kids get to know kids from another country find out the things that they do things mm-hmm. that we have in common things that are different it can't be in real time because um they're on 
Eastern time. But yeah, different. Um, and a couple of years ago, another teacher friend of mine, Alicia Ray, in she's in North Carolina. Our classes connected over mm-hmm. a book that somebody else had written that we were joining in. So Alison had got her readers to edit her work for her, a youth book that she was writing. She got students around the world to edit and offer, provide her with feedback before she published the book. So they are engaged in that real world wow. learning, editing, reading for a purpose. And then we connected with another class in North Carolina who were doing the same thing. So it's given them a lot of opportunities to connect with students in other places. Mm. And what have you learned from holding these big discussions on a Sunday? That's awesome. I'm going to put all this information in the show notes so people yeah. can start joining if they want. I don't, I'm not um, on Twitter, but uh, look, I will I, put it in the show notes for I, to join. I couldn't sum it up in, you know, a few words what I've learned. Just from other people, like just other people sharing what they're doing, other people sharing their thoughts and opinions and understandings of different things. It's introduced me to new strategies and pedagogy, you know, Mm. that I wouldn't probably have done otherwise by being exposed to that. Twitter is a different medium to Instagram. I find, and they both have their purpose and, you know, they're both really worthwhile. Mm. I find Twitter probably is a lot, leans a lot more to professional learning um, and the, the opportunities for mm-hmm. professional learning. Instagram is a lot of ideas and connections and being the visual mm. medium, obviously, is different. Yeah. Uh, I think I find a lot of younger people on Instagram, <laughs> younger than I am anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, yeah. but... yeah. I guess it it comes down to like we were talking about before about apps and digital tools is what is it, what are you wanting to get out of it? I suppose. What is it? What are you wanting to put in? What are you wanting to get out? What are you hoping to achieve or learn or gain by engaging in the platform? Yeah. What are some of your big hopes for education moving forward? I hope that we continue to value and honor the whole child. Yes. That, it's not just about a child's education is not purely academics and their performance academically. It's so much more than that. And I do think we really, it's our responsibility to, yeah, to nurture the whole child. It's And it's the d- responsibility of the system to allow teachers the time to nurture the whole child. <laughs> to recognise yeah. its value. What would be one thing that we could do or dismantle that would start that process off for you, do you think? It's learning how to connect the curriculum to students authentically. So mm. rather than us just sitting down and going, well, they need to learn this, this and this, so we'll teach them it in this, this, this and way, mm. it's, okay, they need to learn this and this and this, Let's ask them or let's provide them yeah. the agency to and collaborate with them about how mm. they could learn it. And that's hard. Like that's a big yeah. thing. Like it's not something you're going to be able to go out and do next week. Um, yeah. It really is a process and it's very difficult because we've, as teachers and especially if we've been teaching for a while, we've held the reins yeah. for so long. It's 
learning how to let go mm. of that. Well, I like and a bit of control, don't we, as teachers? Yeah. Well, yeah. when it falls on us, uh, yeah, mm. I understand why because we're responsible for mm. you know what their perform the students' performance and what they learn, but. We wonder why we, kids don't want to be at school. Mm. Whereas I think if we honestly reflected on do, would we want to be a student in our classroom? And sometimes the answer is probably no. Yeah. <laughs> you no. know, and if that's the case, what, what can we change? I keep thinking I've had a lot of primary school teachers on here now and I hear so many incredible things around agency and responsibility and authenticity you know, engagement, all of those kinds of things. And I really reflect on what we then do at high school, which is treat them like babies again. When they come Mm. from primary school to year seven, it's all about these are our rules, you must conform, you must do this, stand behind your chair. And I think that we are forgetting that they were the leaders of their school Mm. before. And I'm wondering what we can do about improving the agency that they get at primary school without treating them like they're babies again at the bottom Mm. of the pack and I don't think we do that particularly well and I I just hear so many great things about all the leadership opportunities for students in grade six especially in grade five and we don't give them a lot of that when they come Mm. in seven and eight because I think that we just think that we need to kind of reshape them our way Mm. that's yeah that's something that I feel like we need to do better as teachers that Mm. those transitions and I'm not quite sure how to do it yeah yeah, I guess it depends on the schools in your area and things, mm. but I guess it's that, again, it's that collaboration, but it's yeah. a cross, cross sector collaboration. So it's the upper primary teachers and the lower, the secondary teachers getting together, sharing what you do, yes. bouncing ideas, brainstorming, you know, and someone would come up with a really great idea and you'd be like, Oh, I don't know how that would work, but let's give it a go. Like, uh, and it's being willing, I guess, to try something that may not work yeah um and to give it a go I think it's it's also looking at where can the students in high school when they start have more agency as well and things as simple as classroom routines Mm. well can't you establish those with the students Uh, why is it that as the teacher we're the ones that says that say this is what our classroom will look like sound like feel like you will do this you won't do this you will do that. Why not collaborate with them and consult with them? Yeah. And then there's that shared ownership because they've, this is what you guys suggested. This is what you said you mm. wanted. You agreed to this. Come on, let's make it work. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I think when you're in your actual school, you just live within the parameters of that environment that you have. Mm. And the minute you start looking out, like through Twitter, for me, it's through the podcast. I'm now like, okay there are these really universal problems that I'm seeing and I'm seeing that there are so many people having, you know, a seat at the table. We probably need to start having more Mm. connections between crossing the systems and Mm. yeah, which I don't think I've thought of a lot because when you're in your school, you just go about day to day. It's when you have these conversations that you think, no, maybe we could do something. Mm. And I think for me, like all of those connections and what I've learned by making those connections, it really came through a need that I had personally in terms of I I just was getting overwhelmed. I was, I wasn't, I mean, a lot of people would say I was burnt out, but I think I was disillusioned. I really had got to a point where I was just like, this is, I just don't like this anymore. And 
I had to, I was at a crossroads. It was like, well, do I change career at you know, mm. nearly 40 or do I find something to reignite yes. my passion and joy for education? And it was through becoming connected that I was able to do that. I think if I just stayed in my silo, I probably wouldn't still be here now. I would have had to have left. I couldn't have. Or you would be doing work that you weren't proud of anymore, which is just as bad. Yeah. Or I would have just been going through the motions just to get through the day. Yeah. And not doing anyone any good. Yeah. Well, we've we've all had those teachers, though, haven't we? We've all had a teacher that we know Mm. wasn't that enthused. And I mean, the hard part is you were saying before, like 10 years ago, was the pinnacle of this outcome based learning. I mean, that's someone's whole education. That could be someone's mm. whole education that they just happened to get into the classroom when those things were prioritised from prep to six and that's all they know. And, I mean, I already know I'm doing mm. a lot of undoing around some of my Australian history and things that I didn't learn and things mm. that I know I've got big gaps in my knowledge because I happened to be in the education system at a time yeah. where that wasn't prioritised and unless I learn, I'm not going to. And that's a hard thing. You, it is a huge responsibility if we get it wrong for five to ten years, that's someone's whole educational experience at primary school mm. or high school. Well, my youngest is 16, so he's in grade 11, he so there you go. He's, yeah. He's that. Yeah. But, I mean, he's okay. <laughs> but, you know, for some kids it yeah. would be, you know, um, very detrimental. Yeah, and I, I reflect too in primary school, again, I was lucky because I read, but we didn't learn mm. specific grammar. It was all very much about creativity and it's a lovely idea, but then I became an English teacher and didn't have the words for the things that I just Mm. knew because I read. So I had to go and learn, you know, why does that Mm. happen? Why does that, you know, why don't you start a a sentence with because, like I knew you didn't, but I didn't have the actual Mm. rules. I'd never technically learned. Yeah. And so there's a lot of things that, yeah, you either have to find out or you just go your whole life not knowing is important. Mm. And I think that everything goes not in cycles, but it, there's there's been so many changes yeah, about pedagogy in my my career, yeah. and you know the whole there was the whole language approach, then it was the explicit approach, and then it was the this the approach, and it was yeah. the, and it's like it, rote learning. No, not rote learning. Yeah. You know they can't. They don't. And it's like, yeah. can it not just be everything balanced? Yeah, like there's good and bad Great. to everything. Why does it have to be all or all or nothing? And I think you, like you were saying, we have to be willing to acknowledge that there's gaps in our own in our own knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like that, just because you graduate from uni and yeah. you're a teacher, doesn't mean you're done learning. That's right. <laughs> like, it's far from it. You know, it's um, you're learning for the rest of your life. Yeah, and you you have a responsibility to keep learning. And what you said at the very beginning was the fact that even the society that you learned in is now not the society that you teach in. The world changes. Mm. Even if even if you had all the knowledge in the world, some of that knowledge would become antiquated, mm. you know. It just would. Mm. But I do know that the, because like, I teach year four, so obviously yeah. that's in Queensland the year four is the first fleet <laughs> unit. Um, right. So, oh, <laughs> Yeah, so we we've had to do a lot of reflecting on ah. what we were taught, what's in the curriculum, and what changes need to be made. We do tend to get a bit of flack in Victoria in terms of how much Indigenous history is taught, and I've been hearing that Queensland is better, and I think that there's a much 
bigger, from what I understand, bigger prevalent Indigenous community in Queensland. Is that true? What are you feeling about your Australian history? What do you want to change? I mean, the Australian curriculum has embedding Indigenous perspectives in it. So mm-hmm. we do, you know, it's part of the curriculum. It's not something that we're just deciding yeah. that we're going to put in ourselves. Mm. The, the heart, it, It's very complex because yeah. there's not just one group that, uh, indigenous perspectives as you know yes. there's there's many groups and depending on where you live so if you are living rural or remote in Queensland then definitely there mm. are a lot more Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people up north within those communities urban depends on where you are in Brisbane Gold Coast not I mean, there is, but not so much. So I know that where our school is, there are no traditional custodians or elders who are the actual group that um, lived on the lands where our school is located. They have the, the group to the south and the north who sort of have become custodians for this land. So it's, it can be really difficult. New South Wales, I think, are better. They have like Aboriginal land councils and they have yeah. organisations where you can approach and ask for support and make contact with people. We don't, well, not that I'm aware of, we don't have yeah. any of that in Queensland. Okay. And so if you're, if there are no, I guess, elders or you're not aware of any elders, our area is quite new, I guess is relatively new in terms of the population is massive, like it's exploded, but it's okay. not. There was originally like farming, but okay. even the Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people within our school aren't local. They've okay. come from interstate usually or, or other places in Queensland and a lot of them don't even know, the kids don't know really a lot about their own culture either Mm -hmm. so it's really hard you just have to be really careful how you're phrasing or what you like you're not teaching this is aboriginal belief it's like this is a group's belief or this is what they could have believed or understood but in terms of our history unit it's providing both perspectives so it's the from the perspectives of well why did colonization occur and then what were the thoughts and feelings of the traditional owners yeah. of this land when that happened and their experiences. Yeah. And then all the learning that has to keep happening, mm. and all the curriculum that has to keep being rewritten based on new perspectives and ensuring that we are getting all avenues, you know, represented or, or perspectives represented. Mm. The last question I'd love to ask you is, what are some of the greatest lessons you've ever learnt? Okay, so I've probably... Was self-acceptance, I would say, is okay. the biggest one that I've had to come to terms with. I have have had depression and anxiety and I guess that perfectionism, <laughs> that there's no such thing as perfectionism. Mm, it's a hard um, one. Yeah, so it's, it's learning to accept things are the way they are. Mm. I don't have to be perfect for everyone in order mm. to be loved. And I can make mistakes, just like I teach my students. Mistakes are normal. (laughs) We only learn when we make mistakes. Yeah, so it's been a been a pretty pretty long journey, pretty involved, and 
Um, a lot yeah. to sort of sum up in a in a short time, but just yeah, yeah. that I mean I've read a lot of Brene Brown and her work around okay. vulnerability and perfectionism as armor, and that my voice matters that I do have a seat at the table and I deserve to have a seat at the table. Yes. I was just going to ask you what were some of the things that helped you and supported you to come to that realisation and so that book, the books Brene Brown puts out about vulnerability have been big for you in terms of finding that acceptance? Mm, Definitely. And just a lot of self-reflection really. I write as a form of self-reflection so It could be seen by some as oversharing, um, but it's a way okay. to help me process, I guess, my thoughts and feelings and to just get my head around around everything. So, so uh, are you publishing these things? Um, are you publishing thoughts and feelings? A, or? I have a blog, yeah. So okay. I do publish yep. I'll stuff. put that in the show notes if yeah. you want to look at yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's more... Yeah, it just helps me process and I do yeah. find it res- resonates with a lot of people who, you know, f- feel the same, feel, feel the same way. I started blogging last year in 2020 for the same reason because I was so in my head. I had very little, we were in mm. Melbourne lockdown, I had very little outside perspective and I needed to get out of my head. So I completely, I think that that's just such a valid way of mm. getting it all out and to see it looking back at you and to make a judgment as to whether or not it deserves the amount of weight you're putting on it or not. Mm. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think like the whole, you know, you replay things in your head over and over again. or 100%, yeah. You think of every possible outcome to a to a situation and then it's never as bad yeah. <laughs> as what you, what you spend all that time worrying about over but yeah it is that and it's learning to I've had to learn I sort of react emotionally a lot Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. situations and I guess developing that awareness that I need to take the time to respond rather Mm. than react react yeah um, and and the difference between the two and then when I feel that you know a response is warranted that I can make it I guess a measured and calm response rather yeah. than an emotional reaction. <laughs> I used to worry. I'm a big worrier anyway. And a friend of mine said to me once, worrying is like a mouse on a treadmill. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. And I was like, yeah, it's mm. true. Because I would worry about all these things that never actually happened. Happened. No. Yeah. Like I'd have all, <laughs> yeah, all these, what if this happened or this happened or this, and I would prepare plans, every single one of them. And then none of those happened or one of them happened. And I'd had 17 plans when I only needed one and, Yes, I completely understand. Yeah, and then (laughs) the whole replaying incidents and then you realise that, you know what, nobody else is thinking about it except you. Like nobody really to realise you're you're so self-involved about yourself. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like everybody else has their own stuff going on. Like nobody else is going, oh, my God, she was a bit snappy. Like, you know, I mean they might and then they like move on. Yes, sort of thing, yes. you know. So yeah. yeah, it is. It is hard, and I guess that whole um, that whole it's not good, it's not bad. It is what it is. Yes, you know, having to yeah. not like, assign positivity, net positive or negative values to things. It just it is. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for all of your insight and for reaching out. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you over our conversation. Thank you very much for having me.